Hello, I hope you've been enjoying History in Film. I wanted to open this bonus episode by giving a shout out to another podcast I ran across simply because our titles were so similar. History Through Film, with through spelled T-H-R-U. Many coincidences here. Not only are our titles similar, but we debuted at roughly the same time and both happen to be based in Kansas and both work at Kansas high schools. History Through Film is hosted by Curtis Allen, a teacher at Spring Hill High School, who started his podcast based around a class he teaches, where he uses movies to connect students to history from all angles, including not only the film's subject matter, but also the context of the world at the time the movie was created. Basically, it's a class I'm extremely jealous I was never able to take. So if you enjoy my show, check his out as well. Okay, fair warning, I'm going unscripted here, so if I mumble more than usual, I apologize, and you might just need to skip this one, but this was a episode that kind of got suggested to me at the last second, and if I didn't get it done without writing a script, it just wasn't going to fit in our timeline anyway. This is all kind of a fault of my friend Rebecca, who's a food blogger based out of Portland. Her website is PDX Food Love, so if you're into the foodie world, I suggest you check her out. And again, this is kind of a lot of last minute work that I'm getting ready to head out of town and I wasn't really planning on making time for, but I haven't told you all yet. Rebecca is basically the reason this podcast exists. She kind of supported the idea and had the idea that I should do a podcast in the first place. And honestly, without her, I wouldn't be doing this at all. So I should probably both be thankful and angry at her for (laughs) all the work I've, I've been doing because of that. So her recommendation was that I do Monty Python and the Holy Grail, as the title of this episode, no doubt, has led you to conclude already. And frankly, I've never been a huge fan of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. This is probably the third time I saw it, rewatching it for this bonus episode. I remember I watched it first in high school, and I was like, yeah, whatever, it's fine, it's just really dry, maybe not my thing. Rewatched it again at some point, and basically had that those feelings mostly confirmed. Rewatching it now, again, it's probably been, you know, years and years since I had seen it. I kind of get it a little more, appreciate it a little more. There's definitely some iconic and hilarious moments. Very, very clever stuff. But it's just it's just not really my thing, I guess. Uh, I know similar to, like, uh, their Life of Brian. I watched that and fell asleep during it. But at the same time, I'd wake back up, laugh out loud, and then fall back asleep. And I wasn't even that tired. I just think it's just kind of dry and not a lot happening for my taste. But that's not that's not we're here. We're not you're you're not here for my review of Monty Python and the Holy Grail. We're looking at it from a historical context, and the only reason it kind of fits in our place in our timeline here because we already talked about Excalibur in you know being set in the what early 500s. So how are we able to fit Monty Python, who deals with King Arthur as their protagonist, here? Well, right at the beginning it says we're set in 932. I have no idea why this movie says it's set in 932. Again, we don't know the historical level of King Arthur exactly, but he was not in 932, not by a long shot. And I did pull up to see who was king in 932. And I can't exactly pronounce his name, but it's uh, Ethelstan, Ethelstan, who was the grandson of Alfred the Great. And he was succeeded by his brother, I think, so he didn't have heirs that continued on. Uh, the most significant thing I guess I could say about him is that he was kind of the king when, I guess, when he took the crown, he was the king of the Anglo-Saxons, 
And when he died, he was the king of the English. So the title itself and the way the country looked at itself kind of did transition around this time. And he would have been king in 932 when Monty Python and the Holy Grail is set. So not King Arthur. I think maybe they tried to use it as a way to bridge the gap between a few centuries after King Arthur and the whole you know quest for the Holy Grail story. Again, all just kind of legend. But also then getting us a little closer to the Black Plague and and the burning of witches, which didn't happen until probably well after 932. Especially the, the plague was more in like the 1300s, and we'll get to we'll get to that later too. So I think they made, they just chose kind of a happy medium. They do have Arthur as a Briton who defeated the Saxons, which which I did talk about. Is that's kind of what the belief is with King Arthur? They did use many real place names. Mercia and Regid actually got a mention, which was where Sir Urens was from in Excalibur, the one historical figure from that movie. There's no historical figures in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. It's not a real story. But again, it, d- it does hit on several several historical things that we've kind of talked about or will talk about. They have the Trojan rabbit instead of a Trojan horse, which is, of course, a reference to the story we saw in Troy with the Trojan horse. Again, things we haven't got into really yet. The, the plague, the burning of supposed witches, and the rivalry between the French and the English. That's actually probably a very significant thing here. Again, 932, I don't know exactly what was going on with that. Again, this is a just kind of quick, no research or little research version of the podcast. But we will definitely get into the, the rivalry between the French and the English as, as we continue. And this is a humorous first look at that with they, they get to these castles and the same French guy is taunting them from the top top of the castle. Um, yeah, and I know that's short. I really don't have a lot to say. I just kind of wanted to talk about the year 932 and Arthur was a Briton. They used some real place names. And yeah, it's it's uh, sorry, Rebecca. It really just doesn't have a place in my podcast, but I didn't want to let you down. Uh, to keep this from being just ridiculously short, I also want to throw in an audience question here from another friend. Again, if you have any of your own questions, just let me know and I can include them in future episodes. I'm at TrackNerds on Twitter, and you can also reach me through my website, TrackNerds.com. Okay, so Zach Hansen asked me if I believe the accepted theory about the age of the Egyptian civilization and if I give any credence to theories dating them thousands of years earlier. Now, to be honest, this wasn't something I was super familiar with. I think I maybe kind of had heard some things, but I, I didn't know to what level these theories existed or what their, what their arguments were. Uh, so I did look into it a little bit, and there's a couple, I found a couple articles, one just kind of talking about some old fragments that list kings, and it argued that the, the list of kings contradicts the accepted theory. But then again, I found other articles talking about like, that's where they got the list. So I don't think that person didn't seem to really know what they were talking about. And the a big one is people say that the weathering around the kind of enclosement where the, where the Sphinx is, is way more eroded than it should be if it's the same age as everything else there. And basically okay, sure, that's not a bad idea, but it's one thing. It's it's one piece of evidence. So what seems to be happening is they're trying to hang their whole theory on this thing and say that it it discounts all the other evidence that historians and archaeologists have put together 
to come up with the current theory of of the ages. So it's just a it's just a, it's not necessarily a bad argument. It's just not enough of an argument to change the current thinking. And what you what I feel like you see is from a lot of people who push new and unconventional theories in academia is they'll talk about this idea that the mainstream thought is resistant just for the sake of being resistant and they don't want to know the truth because it would prove them wrong. And while there's probably a small grain of truth to that, eventually they would win out. So currently there is not enough evidence to disbelieve the current theory that the you know the that the pyramids are about forty five hundred years old and if that proves to be incorrect, eventually we'll have enough evidence that everyone will be on board. Right now, there's just not enough evidence. There's some people that you know are convinced, and they think that you know everyone just is refusing to believe the solid evidence. When the truth is, there's just not enough evidence to change the current belief system. And I might even be so bold as to argue that those who like to make noise with new and different theories, not just on this, but in general, are almost doing so as a way to make a name for themselves. If I can be really loud and somewhat convincing with arguments that make sense and just say that the whole, you know, rest of the, all the historians and archaeologists are just being resistant, it puts a it puts a spotlight on me in a way that might be profitable. Now, there have absolutely been instances where the common thought was eventually disproven. So I'm not going to completely discount the possibility that the Sphinx and parts of Egypt could be older than originally thought. I, I, that is possible. But right now, there does not seem to be enough evidence to convince the mainstream. So yeah, that's it. Short and sweet. Hope you enjoy when I throw out an extra episode at you. That's all I had for now. Catch you later. <laughs>